0: Years ago in college, which was not that long ago in the grand scheme of things, there were a group of us who were our teachers' best and our teachers' brightest and our teachers' boringest. And one session after we had just finished PowerPoint on some obscure Old English investigation of some obscure Old English text. Our teacher called us into a huddle and reminded us to think about kindergarten. And the favorite thing about kindergarten was show and tell. And he reminded us that it wasn't enough to simply give us the facts. You don't simply tell people the truth, although that is an admirable start. You also need to show them how it impacts their lives. You need to show them examples, bring them to understand it in their own terms. And being English majors, we wrote down every word of his advice in English. Some of us, I know for a fact, created PowerPoint presentations breaking down his advice for future reference. But 2,000 years ago, which is quite significantly longer in the grand scheme of things, Mark was already doing this. He is already telling us that Christ is the Son of God, and then he proceeds to show us that he is the Son of God. In verse 1 of Mark chapter 1, Jesus is the Son of God. And Mark affirms this. And then he departs from there to show us that Jesus is the Son of God. He has fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. Old Testament prophecy points to Christ. There in verses 2 through 8 of chapter 1, he was declared by God to be the Son of God in whom God has great favor in verses 9 through 11. He triumphed as the Son of God in his temptation and fasting in the wilderness. He is denoted as the Son of God by his power in calling disciples. He's characterized as the Son of God by his message demanding repentance there in verses 14 and 15. Distinguished as the Son of God by his do- domination over disease and demons in verses 21 through 45. Interestingly, Mark structures the latter half of chapter 1 by showing us that he was affirmed by heaven as the Son of God in verses 9 through 11 and also by hell in verse 24. And the question remains for those of us who are hearing Mark, both at the time when Mark wrote this book, this gospel, as well as today. Will Christ be affirmed by those who dwell on earth? And central to the book and our passage is the question, is Christ shown to be the Son of God, specifically in his authority? It's not enough to say that Christ is the Son of God. Does he have power equal to his position? This is the rub, right? I can tell you that my superpower is to make a family-sized pizza disappear one bite at a time. But that's kind of commonplace. You would expect that from a middle-aged dude. Is Christ as the Son of God? The stakes are so much higher. Does he have power as the Son of God? To act and do what the Son of God would do. In Exodus chapter 7 through 8, we find Moses displaying God's power before Pharaoh, and Moses has a hard time believing what Moses is doing because his sorcerers can replicate those evidences. It is not until Moses goes on and demonstrates God's power in a unique way that cannot be replicated. That Pharaoh sort of, kind of, maybe, begins to get the picture. And so it is with Christ. Does he demonstrate authority? Does he demonstrate power equal to his claim that he is the Son of God? So we're going to look at six conflicts here in chapter 2, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 12. Six conflicts that demonstrate the divine authority of Christ. And the first one that we see of these six conflicts that demonstrate the divine authority of Christ is his authority to forgive sin. We find Jesus back in Capernaum. The northern end of the Sea of Galilee was a bustling commercial center centered on the fish trade. He is back in someone's house, possibly Peter, possibly James. We don't know for sure. But in chapter 2, we find that he is in this house and he is speaking the word to them. And the people are coming to hear him. The word there specifically is the gospel. The news of the kingdom and of his bringing God's repentance coupled with the call to repent. I was reading a commentary earlier this week on this based on the archaeology of what we know about residences at this time. Some people believe that there could have been up to 50 people just crammed in to a space which is roughly the size of your living room and dining room. People coming to hear him speak. They have seen the marvels. They want to know more about the person. And a paralyzed man is brought. And he is so desirous to reach Christ that he and his friends are willing to commit vandalism to get to Christ. I wonder if you can think back on a time in your life when you wanted to get to Christ with such intensity. I hope that is the case today. Come to Christ. Don't let anything stop you. This man cannot do anything for himself, but he desires to get to Christ and his friends help him to get through the roof. If we had time, we could discuss the unique construction of roofs. There was not 20-year shingle on this roof. There was tile. There was a mix of branches and beams and clay Um, we don't have time to get into that but it would have been an arduous task and it was vandalism according to old testament law this man would have been on the hook to pay roughly double the cost of the damage which he had done he needed to restore it and we believe pay back as well but coming in in front of christ as christ is speaking to this crushed gathering Christ looks at him and he sees a man who is paralyzed. He sees a man who is helpless. He sees a man who is in every sense pathetic. And he sees his real need. This man certainly would be benefited by being able to walk again. It's possible that the paralysis may have affected other areas of his capacity. We don't know if he was a paralytic to what extent this was. Full paralysis did he have the use was he able to talk could even move his vocal cords we don't know but this was a man who could do nothing for himself depended on others and in light of his physical needs christ points him to a greater need and said son your sins are forgiven at this point the conflict emerges the scribes the academic and intellectual heavyweights of the of the time those who had the most intimate knowledge of Scripture. All of them had some sort of scroll of the law passed down from generation to generation. They memorized it, their particular scroll. They knew it down to the cracks and creases in the leather of the scroll. You could put a pin in one side of the scroll and they could tell you on what letter the pin had emerged on the other side of the scroll. Crazy familiarity with the law, with God's word. They correctly understand that the forgiveness of sin is a prerogative that only belongs to God. As the supreme judge and as the party sinned against by every act of rebellion, the right to forgive only belongs to God. This is the conflict. How can this man tell us that another man's sins are forgiven. And we must remember that this is fairly unique. This was before Roman Catholicism. This was before the world knew of various denominations which claim to forgive sin through various penances or whatever. This was serious. This is a man who is acting as God. Not in God's place, but as God. And Christ in his omniscience get the humor of mark he tips his hat god knows what they're thinking why because he's the son of god here he's showing us once again christ is the son of god he understands their hearts and rather than just tell them he asks which is easier it's kind of a confusing phrase in essence christ is saying which is easier to claim as a convincing reality your sins are forgiven anybody can say that You'll get in trouble if you say it, if you say it in front of the wrong people, but anybody can say that. Or, and then he proceeds to tell the man to get up and walk. And the man gets up and walk. And by getting up and walking, he demonstrates his divine authority to forgive sin. If a man can miraculously heal another man under the power of God, he has God's power. He is God to forgive sin man does we're told in luke that he goes out singing god's praises and the people are amazed they are stunned they are set abuzz and they glorify god but most tellingly they do not acclaim christ as the son of god they love what jesus has done they're amazed that he did it but they do not recognize yet that he is the son of god but christ has authority to forgive sin. A second conflict then, which we see in verses 13 through 17, again, still in Capernaum. He goes out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax office, and he said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him. Christ was teaching at the seashore, and as he passed by a customs booth, a location set up to tax the fishermen, as they came in from with their freshly caught, caught fish, for them to pay money, a percentage equal to the value of the fish that they had caught. He says, follow me. Tax collectors were hated. First of all, they were in the pocket of Rome. And nobody loved Rome. Not even the Romans loved Rome. There were a few patriots, but not even the Romans loved Rome. But Rome was a very good business model. If you ever get into the business of empire building, I would commend Rome to you. They knew how to make money. And essentially, it was just a great big org chart. The emperor was at top. He told people to give him money, and he had soldiers who could go out and make him money. And from there, you had all the sub-officials. And everybody had their hand in everybody else's pocket. All the way down to the governor of the king of Israel. He was a man who had paid money most likely or had done a favor for somebody above him and had been placed in this position and he would be kept in this position so long as he did two things. Number one, made money for the empire. Number two, kept the people in subjection to himself. It was bad enough that there was a Roman pagan ruling over them at this time as a governor. It was even worse that there were Jews who sold their consciences to go serve these men, to take money from their fellow Jews. Tax collectors not only collected the quotas that were required of them, but they also saw it as an opportunity to make money for themselves. Kind of circular profit here, to make your money work for itself. And that's what they did. They not only charged people and collected the taxes that were due, but they also charged them more so that they could put some of that money in their pocket. And then when they took the money... To the governor, turned it in, they would be paid a commission on how much they had collected. So they were just making money hand over fist. And Levi here, who we know as Matthew, was one of these. He was doing his countrymen wrong. He was hated by his countrymen. And by the way, his father, Alphaeus, Jewish name. He was a Jew, the son of a Jew. This was a traitor of the worst kind sitting at the seashore, ripping off his fellow countrymen in order to pursue filthy lucre, as it were. And as Christ passed by the custom booth, with the same authority that he called Lazarus from the grave, he called Levi to follow him. What a shock. What a shock. Ancient rabbis and teachers and men who wanted to make a philosophical name for themselves were very picky about who they allowed to follow them as their pupils. It was a apl- deep application process. Your heritage could be examined up to the second or third generation to make sure your grandfather wasn't a dirty, rotten scoundrel. And something wouldn't surface that would then cause dishonor to me as your leader. Christ has no consideration for who Matthew's father was. He had no consideration for Matthew. Matthew had not even applied to follow Christ. Christ comes to him and effectually calls him, follow me. And Christ, le- uh, and Matthew f- leaves all and follows Christ. Matthew got up and he followed. He left behind all that he was, all that he was doing immorally, and he obeyed Christ. Further, as we go along in verses 15 and on, we find that Matthew invites him into his home and that Christ is surrounded by men and women of the same kind. And they are at table with him. And oh, by the way, there in verse 15, at the end of verse 15, we find that all these terrible people are following him. Like Matthew, they too have turned their backs on their former lives. And they are following Christ. And Christ is fellowshipping with them. Just as we saw him in the home. In verses 1 through 12, speaking the word to them. He is most likely speaking the word to them as well as they sit at table, as they fellowship over a meal. And here we see the conflict with the Pharisees. Rather than engage Christ head on, they go to his disciples. One of the commentators I read actually sees this with a little bit of humor. It's quite possible that the Pharisees were unwilling to go into Matthew's house because it was a dirty, impure house filled with dirty, impure people. So they just waited until one of the disciples happened to wander out to the curb, maybe taking a bag of trash or something, and then they jumped on him. What is Christ doing in there? Doesn't he know that he's doing what's wrong by hanging out with wrong people? The Pharisees believed that engagement with sinners, sitting at the table, eating with them, fellowshipping with them, would either make Christ impure or it suggested that Christ approved of sin. Once again, Christ in his omniscience hears this, he knows of this, and he engages the Pharisees head on. Christ hears and responds that his engagements with sinners is the transformative fellowship of mercy that requires a knowledge of self-sin and of unworthiness. Anyone who believes that they will be saved because of their own merits has no need to follow Christ. And in fact, there is an edge to what Christ is saying here, implicit to his statement to the Pharisees that it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He is telling them that in their self-righteousness, God has no place for them. Christ called Levi. And he received Levi's obedience in following him. Christ called others who were equally sinful as Levi, if not worse, and they followed him. Christ has authority to call sinners to himself, to repentance. And that authority proceeds from his word as well. He calls sinners here today, those who recognize themselves as unworthy of his favor because of your unrighteousness. He calls you to come to him. On the other hand, if you are here today and you are perfectly satisfied with the salvation that you are building for yourself through your good works, let me assure you, God has no place for you. You are good enough on your own. Further, thirdly, Christ not only has the power to forgive sin, Christ not only has the authority to call sinners to repentance, but Christ also has authority as the fulfillment of kingdom prophecy, and we see this in verses 18 through 22. Now in the passage immediately preceding where Christ is with sinners and the Pharisees jump on his disciples, here we find a reversal. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and they came and said to Christ, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast but your disciples do not fast? In the first instance they criticized Christ to his disciples, now they are criticizing the disciples to Christ. must ask what are john's disciples doing here john the baptist recognized that christ was the messiah well john was in prison his influence was waning and it's possible that these disciples of john saw themselves in league with the pharisees on various social and political and religious issues it's possible that many of them had not fully absorbed john the Baptist's teaching on these things and so they are in league with the pharisees whole matter of fasting is fascinating as well fasting at this time was not found in fact the only place in the bible where a fasting a specific fasting is commanded is leviticus chapter 16 verses 29 through 30 where we have fasting commanded for the day of atonement all other fasting was voluntary however over the centuries as israel had fallen into sin and as israel had come out of sin Experience the blessings of God. Various religious authorities had set up fasting as a way to repent of sin and as a way to indicate that you were praying for the restoration and reconciliation of Israel. And over time, as these traditions got ingrained, they became mandatory. And human traditions supplanted biblical truth. And you say, that can't happen here. Yeah, just try Messing with the order of service. to See what that does. (laughs) Human traditions do have a way of supplanting biblical truth and teaching. Now here Jesus identifies himself as the bridegroom. And he identifies himself in terms of happiness and feasting, the opposite of fasting. It would be inappropriate to mourn or observe penance or not partake in fellowship at a wedding. Christ is essentially saying that While the groom is with them, the attendants of the groom cannot fast, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the groom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. Christ is the bridegroom. Christ is the cause of celebration. Why? Because he is proclaiming salvation. All that the fasting, the human ordained fasting represented. The repentance of sin, praying for the restoration and reconciliation of Israel, for God's kingdom to be brought in. Christ receives the repentance of his people. Christ is the pinnacle of God's promise regarding kingdom and restoration. Christ is telling them that it is a time of celebration because of his person. And Christ also foreshadows his own crucifixion. The groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast On that day. In the midst of all the happiness, he has a mind open to the fact that sorrow is coming. So they do not fast because they are celebrating. They are celebrating because Christ is the fulfillment of all that is promised. And then we have those marvelous parallels. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth in an old garment, otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results don't patch an old ripped up garment with new cloth because the new cloth being stronger will just rip a bigger hole next time pressure is brought to bear. No one puts new wine into old wineskins otherwise the wine will burst the skins as it ferments with the gases with the pressure in the wineskin if the leather is old and cracked and had been previously used and dried out from doing wine it would certainly burst Now, shockingly This is not a reference to Chris Tomlin composing new verses to perfectly good songs. Rather, it refers to the absolute incompatibility of Christ with the man-made traditions of Judaism. The Jews at this time, the Pharisees, and some of the disciples of John who were in league with them, in their attempt to keep people from sinning, they had gates and fences or gates and fences were not meant to be and after centuries of piling up gates and fences to keep you from getting close to even violating God's law God's law and what God's law pointed to had been obscured Christ is saying your your traditions are incompatible with me God-centered faith is not compatible with self-centered piety and Christ authoritatively guts the pharisaical system, and proclaims his centrality and power as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. We like to think of Jesus as gentle Jesus, meek and mild, and oh, by the way, there's that one time that he took a whip into the temple and cleared it out. That wasn't an exception. Clearing out the temple was not an exception. Jesus essentially has a verbal whip, and he has walked into these Pharisees' lives, and he is clearing out their paradigm is telling them that what they have been holding to, what they have been pinning their hopes to, are absolutely void and self-centered. Not only does Christ have authority as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, but he has the authority to permit good on the Sabbath as Lord of the Sabbath. Chapter 2, verses 23 through 28. We again have the Pharisees accusing the disciples to christ previously they had accused christ to the disciples now they are accusing the disciples to christ as they're walking through a grain field on the sabbath disciples who are hungry and not having any family-sized pizzas available they begin to pluck from the grain that they are walking through they begin to rub them in their hands to get off the shells and the chaff and they are eating the grains this was a violation of Pharisaical tradition on various levels. They were winnowing wheat, they were harvesting wheat, and by chewing the grain, they were making bread. All three things were specifically prohibited by the Talmud. Christ proclaims sarcastically Have you never read? Have you done? just let that sit for a while? These were men who spent all their time. These were men who ruined their eyes from sitting up late and poring over the scriptures under candlelight. And Christ asks, have you never read? And then he lays out for Samuel chapter 21 verses 1 through 6 when the high priest met David's needs and gave him the bread of the presence despite it being against the letter of the law. Yet in light of David's own needs as the anointed of God, Instead of being a time of rest, restoration, and worship, the Pharisees had made the Sabbath a difficult time of adherence to strange commands. And rather than being convicted by their shortcomings, the the Pharisees are puffed up with pride over their conformity to outward restrictions, which they think makes them blameless. The Sabbath was made for man's rest and delight in God, but it it has become burdensome. By rightly interpreting scripture, Christ asserts his authority over its original purpose. He asserts its permissions and its limitations and shows himself to be the fulfillment of the Sabbath. Christ is God's rest for his people. And dependence on him brings no guilt. By showing the correct reasoning relating to thinking through the Sabbath, Christ proclaims himself Lord of the Sabbath. The true reality of the Sabbath is displayed. It is for the benefit of God's people. And by declaring that, by cutting down their traditions, Christ declares that he is Lord of the Sabbath. He is equal with God who originally created the Sabbath. He rested in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 2 on the seventh day, and he commanded that rest in Exodus chapter 20. Christ is Lord of the Sabbath. He has authority to proclaim the right use of the Sabbath. But not only does he have authority to permit good on the Sabbath, he has authority to do good on the Sabbath. The very next Sabbath, we are led to believe, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, he entered a synagogue again, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they were watching him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Christ is in a synagogue, there's a man there with a withered hand. In the original, the word withered here was frequently used of dead plants that were entirely dried up, sort of like those poor weeds in your driveway. Complete inability, complete death. And the Pharisees are looking for yet another reason to accuse and attack and discredit Christ here we have a conflict in verses 3 and 4 which is very fascinating previously we have in their hearts and in their words the pharisees and the scribes attacking christ but here christ goes takes the initiative he goes on the offensive as it were he calls the man forward and then he turns to them and he asks them a question that gets at the meaning of the sabbath and if we could summarize the interaction at this point the The summary would be, is it okay to love your neighbor on the Sabbath? Now, for the Pharisees to answer yes would have been to absolve Christ of any wrongdoing. And that is what they're absolutely not going to do. However, to say no would have been to contradict the clear teaching of the Old Testament, of which they were very well aware. Can't say yes. Can't say no. And so, like a petulant child, they just sit quietly. Their silence is petty. And in a reference to Numbers chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, where the children of Israel complained against God's provision for them in the manna, we are told that God, Christ, looks on them with anger. At their hardness of heart, their insensibility, their imperviousness to pity, their spiritual death. And then he calls the man for, then he tells the man to extend his hand. This man had a withered hand. He could not extend it, and yet he extends it, and it is healed. My, my, what a gorgeous, beautiful, reassuring, comforting view of God's effectual call. That he makes possible what he commands. And again, he demonstrates his power as Lord of the Sabbath, in destroying their customs and upholding the true purpose and interpretation of the Sabbath. Following this conflict, we find that the Pharisees immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as how they might put him to death. The Herodians were people who loved the rule of Rome. Many of them were irreligious. They were all about political power. They had no time for doctrinal debates. But the Pharisees are willing to go into alliance with them in order to achieve their purpose of killing christ and this is particularly ironic since in chapter 2 and verse 16 they had previously accused christ of consorting with sinners here the pharisees themselves are consorting with sinners in order to kill christ they refuse to recognize his authority as the son of god preferring to seek alliances with sinners finally We find Christ's authority over disease and demons. And this we find at verses 7 through 12. Verse 7, Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples. Knowing that they wanted to kill him, the Pharisees wanted to kill him, he withdrew. He came to earth to die for our sins, but this is not the time and this is not the place. You want to spend some time thinking through God's sovereignty and human responsibility? This is a good place to start. He withdrew to the sea with his disciples and a large multitude from Galilee followed from all different sorts of places, from Judea, from Jerusalem, from Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. Jews, mixed groups of Jews and Gentiles and places where only Gentiles lived. A great number of people heard about everything that he was doing and came to him, verse 8 says, so much so that they're pressing in to be healed and they're crushing him. We see that in verses nine and ten and so he gets a boat and pushes out christ has power over disease this brings us full circle to where we started out with the paralytic being healed this brings us full circle to what we have seen in chapter one with others being healed christ has power over disease disease is the result of sin ultimate sin adam's sin that death and rot God has power over it. Christ is God. But then we're also told in verse 11, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, you are the son of God. And he strongly warned them not to reveal who he was. Fascinating. Evil spirits begin to panic at his very presence and recognize his divinity. And he silences them. He effectively silences them, commands them not to speak. This is more than a restraining order. This is effectual. He shuts them down. Why? He has no interest in publicity from demons, even though those demons were theologically correct. His own actions and his own words affirmed who he was. Christ has divine authority to proclaim himself and to prescribe and limit and command worship of himself. So in conclusion, through conflicts, through these six conflicts, we see that Christ demonstrates his divine authority, his authority to forgive sin, his authority to call sinners to repentance, his authority in fulfilling kingdom prophecy, His authority to permit good on the Sabbath as the Lord of the Sabbath. His authority to do good on the Sabbath as the Lord of the Sabbath. And his authority over disease and demons. Let me close some points of application. First of all, I would ask you, Christ has authority and he is worthy to be believed. He has demonstrated that he is the son of God. I want to ask you, if you are rejecting him, why are you yet rejecting him? His authority does not depend on what you believe about him. Humble yourself, turn to Christ, humble and submit to his authority. Also, I would commend to those here today who consider themselves wise And philosophy and theology and perhaps do not yet believe in him if jesus could shut down by his authority philosophers and theologians if he could show the emptiness of their thoughts if he could rightly put scripture in its right place and show how their interpretation was incorrect and far from the mark why do you think that you are any better than they? who are you to go up against god in a battle what objection do you have that would stand against god's authority once again your wisdom is foolishness submit to the authority of christ turn to him in repentance and faith, and turn to him in repentance and faith overall through mark until now we find that christ is proclaimed as lord in word and shown to be lord in Will you bow to his authority? Will you keep bowing to his authority by his grace? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so grateful that you have not left us to our own imaginations to feel out and seek to understand for ourselves who you are. You have given us clear and demonstrated evidence of your power as God and of the power of Christ as your son, one equal with you, one bringing salvation, one commanding repentance, in whom we should rejoice and delight ourselves. Father, we pray that we might not be arrogant. We pray that you might remove the blindness with the same power with which you called Matthew from his toll booth, with the same power with which you enabled a man with a withered arm to lift his arm and be healed with the same power with which you brought a man who could not walk, to walk and leap and rejoice. We pray that you might remove blindness from our eyes and bring us to rejoice and praise and glorify you. All this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please stand with me as we close out our time together in song. so oh.